0: Hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we'll be starting out a series of discussions on the book of Ezekiel, touching on what we're already familiar with from the book and the goods and the bads of those first impressions. Throwing in some backstory to get us ready for a fresh look, we'll cap it all off with a reflection on the insufficiency of fascination. Hope you're ready. really exciting for me. Last week was a chance to sort of cast the vision for this podcast, the need behind it, the conviction behind it, and what this podcast will seek to do. But today is a chance to actually start doing that. So just want to recap some of the stuff we talked about last week and what we're doing here on the podcast. Um, The belief behind this podcast is that um, we have a problem not with clinging too closely to the Bible, but with clinging to too little of it. And we want to release the Bible from the stigma of how it's been read to open it up and and let it speak to us in all that it's trying to say. So that involves kind of tearing down stereotypes, yes, but we don't want to just deconstruct. We want to reconstruct. We want to build up our worldview, our perspectives, our thoughts, emotions, everything on the entire message of the Bible. So because of that, When we look at unfamiliar books of the Bible in this podcast, we're actually after a couple of things. First of all, we want to clear up any confusion about a given passage or book so that we can understand it, right? Because if we can't understand what a part of the Bible is saying, then we're not going to be able to do anything with it. It's not going to affect our lives. It's going to encourage this confusion and discomfort with those parts of the Bible, So, first thing, we want to clear up confusion, but we also want to draw out the unique contributions of that book or passage to the Christian message. We want to highlight the things that are there that we may be missing um, when we dig deep and see all that it has to say. And finally, we don't want to stop there either. We want to flesh out the impact of that message, that unique contribution on our lives and its intersection with culture. So we don't want to just keep things up in our heads here. We want to really bring it down to earth, really help to flesh out the difference that this can make um, when we take this part of the Bible to heart. Okay, now, with that being said, uh, when we start out a new series on different books, um, I want to do something to to help us get started on that uh, clearing up confusion and fleshing out what it means. So I wanna look at a couple of things that this book is known for and some things that are good about that and maybe some consequences of what we might be missing when we limit ourselves to that part of the book. So let me explain what I mean here. We're talking about Ezekiel today, all right? Now, Ezekiel, I think, is a great example of a neglected part of the Bible, but it is known for a few things. So just like we talked last week about some famous verses that we're used to incorporating into our lives, there are some more famous parts of Ezekiel that we may be familiar with. So here's a couple things that I think come to mind when we think of Ezekiel. First of all, it's kind of infamous for being weird and almost even encrypted. Ezekiel is a really difficult book to read for many people and for many reasons, When he's not being dismissed for being too offensive, he's dismissed for being too insane. And when he's not being dismissed at all, he's found to be both shocking and confusing, and we just kind of set him aside. So there's a lot of different angles on this, and it just boils down to the book being kind of weird. So a lot of scholars have even tried to point out many different mental disabilities that Ezekiel has. Like, they look at the stuff going on in the book, they look at the visions, the really offensive images and topics, and they say, this guy must have had some serious mental handicaps. So, uh, Daniel Block, in his commentary, he he references E.C. Broom and an article he has in the Journal of Biblical Literature called Ezekiel's Abnormal Personality. And here are just some of the diagnostic characteristics that Broom lists having seen the way Ezekiel talks. Catatonia, narcissistic, masochistic conflict, schizophrenic withdrawal, delusions of grandeur and persecution, and just kind of a general paranoid condition. Okay, so even scholars studying this book think that this is an opportunity for psychotic analysis. That's how weird the book is. Another example uh going way back, not just modern scholars, but rabbinic scholars. Um, Rabbis actually had these rules, these cautionary tales that warned of how dangerous it was to study, especially the first few chapters of Ezekiel. In the first few chapters of Ezekiel, there's this vision of God, and it's filled with all these symbols and images. And um, they even (laughs) had these stories of, you know, a child who thought that he could study and understand that and was struck down with fire from heaven. All right. So even the rabbis thought, this is so weird. We should limit the people who can study this to only the most trained professionals. There's even a, a legend about Hananiah ben Hezekiah. Um, this was a scholar, a said, that uh, used up 300 measures of oil for, for light to study by, just kind of nonstop in order to harmonize um, the things that Ezekiel said with the first five books of the Bible. Because it, it was so confusing that someone needed to come in and explain how all this fit together. And there's no you know record of the harmonization that he came up with, but it's said that his effort is what saved the book of Ezekiel and uh, kept it in the Bible for the Jewish people. Okay, so modern scholars, psychotic analysis, rabbinic scholars, all these special rules and stories about how hard it is to understand. Um, And then even just me on Google. Okay, so I tried looking up what the most read passages in Ezekiel were just to get, you know, another perspective and more information about um, what we may already be familiar with. And one of the top Google results was an article called Is Ezekiel's Vision of the Wheel Evidence of UFOs in the Bible? Okay, so you know a book of the Bible is weird when we get to it and we read it and we think, hmm, that must be aliens. That makes sense. Like, (laughs) okay, you get my point. Ezekiel is kind of known for being out there. Some people think of like, the wheels within the wheels and all the eyes and just kind of this head scratching thing of, all right, it's a hard to understand book. So that's one of the things I think it's known for is being really hard to know what it's saying. It's being weird. Um, Another thing I think Ezekiel is known for, uh, there are some really powerful prophecies and messages of hope towards the end. And there's a couple that have really stood out um, in more recent church history and really had an impact. So the Valley of Dry Bones is one that I'm really thinking about here. Um, It's a very vivid, very powerful prophecy that speaks to God's ability to bring life and hope into what looks totally devastated and impossible to repair. Um, So in evangelical revival culture, this is a very um, popular passage to think about God's ability to revive Um, even the most dead of corpses and bones, and the revival he can have uh, in our lives. In African-American culture, this is a very significant passage uh, for similar reasons, speaking to uh, the hope of what God can bring about in um, situations that we uh, might think hopeless. There are even African-American spirituals. The dem dry bones being an example, Um, you may have heard uh, hymns where where that passage has come to mind. So that's another thing. We think of it being weird. We think of the valley of dry bones, it's another thing that comes to mind. Now, one more thing there's a passage that has gotten some attention um, in Ezekiel 28. And in this section of Ezekiel, he's going after the king of Tyre and giving judgments against him. And A lot of people have thought that this is actually talking about Satan's origin story. So there are parts of the prophecies that say things like, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seats of gods, yet you are no God, um, I will cast you down. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Uh, You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, um, you were blameless, till unrighteousness was found in you, your heart was proud, I cast you to the ground, I exposed you before kings. Okay, so people have read that and thought, hey, this is weird, again, and this is talking about Eden and a guardian cherub, like, this could be actually talking about Satan, and so for that reason, I think it's another... Somewhat familiar part of Ezekiel, at least in certain circles, is this kind of code to um, unlock and figure out what it tells us about angels and demons and all of that. So, we're starting out a series of discussions on the book of Ezekiel, and we're thinking through some of the things that the book is already known for and famous for, and things we're already familiar with from the book. And we want to think through What's good about that? What's good about those being the parts that we're familiar with, the interpretations we already have? And also, what could be some of the unintended consequences of that limitation and that interpretation? So first of all, what's good about knowing Ezekiel for those three things? What's good about it being known for being weird? (laughs) Well, in a sense, actually... It's not too far off. Ezekiel does have this supernatural, otherworldly, like, make-you-take-a-step-back kind of quality to it. And it's supposed to have that. That's not just a 21st century cultural gap thing. Like, this has always been weird to people, even to his original audience. Even Jerome, you can see him um, in early prominent figure in church history wrestling with the confusion that he's having with the book. So it's not totally bad for it being known to be weird. At least we're familiar with this unique quality of the book, its strangeness, and uh, we can anticipate that going in. So, you know, that could be good. Um, What about that Satan origin story thing, that Ezekiel 28? Um, Well, that comes from a part of the book where there's all these prophecies against the surrounding nations. And that shows up a lot in the prophets, where the prophets um, speak for God and deliver these messages of of condemnation and, and judgment against their oppressors and the nations that are around them. And that is a really, really neglected part of the Bible. So it's cool that Ezekiel is known for something in that section that we're kind of our attention is drawn to these judgments against the nation, and it's getting us to think, hey, there might be something relevant here I really want to dig into what he's saying um that's good and now finally the the valley of dry bones knowing Ezekiel for that, like I said before, I mean these are amazing powerful, vivid messages of hope and it's great that the church has started to incorporate that into its own mindset its own language, its own um, reasons for hope. Uh, Just like Ezekiel is so vivid and otherworldly, that really has an impact into his prophecies of the future and restoration. And uh, it's great that we've, we've started to think about that and incorporate that in our lives. Now, those things are good, but what might be some of the unintended consequences of zeroing in on only those parts in the way that we have? So, first of all, for the weird stuff, it's okay to know that it has a supernatural quality to it, a kind of otherworldliness, but when that weirdness makes us avoid the book, makes us tell people you'll be burned by fire from heaven if you read it, that this is talking about aliens and psychotic disabilities, like, that is bad, okay? The weirdness is not meant to keep us from the book. It's meant to be a part of its impact on us. It's part of how it's communicating to us. It's part of its rhetorical effect. It's part of the prophecy and the divine nature of what's being said. Okay, so Ezekiel, yes, is a difficult book to read, but since we're not used to hearing its kind of message— Oftentimes we're not sure what to do with it either. And because Ezekiel is commonly avoided in churches and Christian circles, we're given a reinforced message that strange equals bad, that the weirdness of Ezekiel is a good enough reason to skip over to the Valley of Dry Bones and leave it at that. But ironically, when when we fail to process the shocking message that he has, when we Entertain ourselves with the fascinating visions and his provocative rhetoric, but we we don't let all of that hit us where it's count. We make the same mistake that his original audience did. Check out this passage from Ezekiel 33, starting around verse 30. God is speaking to Ezekiel and he says, As for you, son of man, human, Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their own greed, their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you will say, but they will not do it. When this comes, these judgments he's been talking about, and it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So God is warning the people, he's warning Ezekiel that his audience is is treating him like an entertainer and a fascination, but they're missing the point of what all of these qualities and messages are supposed to be doing in them, the point that he's making, the effect that it's supposed to have. The warnings, judgments, language, the methods of Ezekiel, yeah, they're about as far field from our positive, encouraging culture as can be. But it's not like they didn't freak out everyone in his own culture, too. It's supposed to do that. And it's bad when that weirdness causes us to avoid the book instead of embracing it. It takes something strange and weird to show us what's strange and weird about the status quo. It takes something otherworldly and messed up to help us see what's messed up about our incubated world. And we'll be getting to that side of things in a couple of weeks when we cover some of his sign acts and the prophecies that he has. So what are the consequences of that Satan origin story thing? The king of Tyre interpreting that as a message about primordial history and angels and demons. Well, first of all, is that passage really talking about Satan and his origin story? Not really. Um, At most, we'd be able to say that Ezekiel is doing something like historical fiction, you know, where he's, he's drawing on this general narrative and idea of how things were in the Garden of Eden and using that to kind of describe the King of Tyre and his own experience and his own judgment. But even that isn't really obvious or told to us anywhere that we should be reading it that way. There's tons of clues throughout all of those prophecies that this is really just talking about the Prince of Tyre. I mean, it says, say to the Prince of Tyre, say to the King of Tyre, it talks about foreign nations and the sea and them bringing their swords against him and killing him, like doesn't really work with Satan unless you've got, I don't know, a colony of surrounding demon nations. You know, it's just a stretch. And we're The problem is we, we treat it like a code to be broken, and that really misunderstands the way that Ezekiel is meant to be read. And we'll cover that a little bit more later. But finally, what might be some of the unintended consequences of knowing only the valley of dry bones? Well, I'm thinking about a conversation I had with someone um, about Ezekiel this was when I was doing research on the book in seminary and studying it more and this person said yeah I've actually been reading the book of Ezekiel now and I asked oh that's you know that's awesome how's it been going and um, how's it how's it been for you and she said uh, it's good you know the message is pretty clear I was like oh yeah what's that and and she said everybody's hosed <laughs> and um. You know, that's that's kind of true. Now, she hadn't gotten to that section yet of Ezekiel where these powerful promises of hope and restoration come into play. But it is like a very kind of pendulum-swinging moment where you have a massive section of the book on judgment, 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 and then you have these powerful promises of hope at the end. And I think there's a really unfortunate consequence when we separate the two parts of that book, that judgment, judgment, and that hope, hope at the end. When we just look at the judgment and we don't get to the hope that comes, then we think that's all this is about. And man, this is exhausting. And I get the point, like God is very angry and something's going to happen. And then if we just skip all that and get to the message of hope, then we, we don't really have our hopes set on the foundation that Ezekiel wants us to. We miss the important um, weeding out and probing that needs to happen in that first part of the book before we be can, can be ready for the promises at the end. Now, that's where we're going to be picking up things next week. We're going to draw on what we've already covered today and move forward with an overview of the book and the structure of the book. When we take a bird's-eye view of Ezekiel and how its pages unfold, what does that tell us about the relationship between judgment and hope and the probing nature of God? And what effect could that have on our lives? Be sure to check in next Monday as we start that journey, putting all the pages of the Bible back together. Uh, Remember, we're after three things. We want to clear up confusion. We want to understand what's being said. We want to draw out the unique contribution, the unique message that Ezekiel has, and we don't want to stop there. We want to flesh out the impact of that in our lives. Now to that end, I think we still have some confusion to clear up here. We may have a better idea of what's dangerous about thinking of those three first impressions when we come to Ezekiel. You know, we may have done a little deconstruction, but what backdrop should we replace that with? What sorts of things should we be thinking about when we come to Ezekiel? Well, I think it's always safe to start with what we know about the original audience, the original intentions of the book. That'll help us get a clearer vision of what we should be taking away when we encounter what it's saying. First off, let's cover some key background information. Where are we in the timeline of Israel's history, and why does that matter for the book of Ezekiel? So for those of you who are familiar with First and Second Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, those books of the Bible, you know that Israel's history in the long run is pretty depressing, pretty downhill. Uh, you have these peaks with certain kings in certain eras, like with David and Solomon, where things seem to be going great. Um, the Their spiritual lives with God are on track, and the society is benefiting as a result, But for the most part, from then on with Solomon and and onward, um, the kings and the people are shown to be spiritually corrupt, which leads to moral corruption, these social atrocities happening, um, which causes the need for these prophets of God to rise up for God to call out the people and call them back to himself. So, for a long part of their history, Israel is split between the north and the south. There's conflict between them, and the north has 10 of the 12 tribes, and they're even worse than the smaller southern part, which is called Judah. And because of that, God brings judgment on them. And now, at that time, the the big bad guy, the massive world superpower, was Assyria, the nation of Assyria. And the way that they took over the northern part of Israel their strategy, their philosophy was to intermingle them with other nations. So they scattered them to all other parts of the globe. They brought all the nations into their own country. They were trying to create this syncretistic culture and break down their own identity so that they'd be less resistant of Assyria as a whole. And it actually worked. You you see this kind of loss of, you know, northern Israel as this discrete. Nation. Uh, their identity is lost. And that's actually the background for the Samaritans in the New Testament and why there's such a conflict between them and the Jewish people. Okay, so that happens, but Judah, the southern part, is still hanging in there. You know, they're still spiritually and morally corrupt, but they're hanging in there. And um, from that point on, the major world superpower isn't Assyria anymore, it's Babylon. And Babylon their strategy for taking over God's people is different, okay? So they don't just scatter the people among the nations and bring the nations into them. They try to maintain Judah's distinct identity, its own religion, its sense of a culture, um, but they deport them to their own country. They, they try to utilize the best and brightest and all their efforts and thoughts to advance Babylon's kingdom instead. Now, with the prophets, sometimes we have the problem of not knowing exactly where on the timeline to fit them. It's kind of like trying to read diary entries without any dates at the top. You could look at the stories and what they're talking about and think, oh, I guess we could, we could put this at this point in their life, or maybe they're talking about this other thing that they did. But with Ezekiel, The dates are all filled in, in detail. We know exactly where on the timeline this is happening, and we know what situations that God was speaking into, what was going on with the people, and the backdrop of what they're thinking and experiencing. So what happened with Babylon and Judah uh, was Babylon took over Judah and gained control of Judah, but the downfall of the nation happened in waves. It didn't all happen at once. So since the death of King Josiah, um, his sons after him, the kings after him, would kind of rebel against Babylon, and Babylon would respond, and there would be these waves of deportation. You see Daniel being deported to Babylon, and one of those waves, and Ezekiel is in another wave, but it's not until 586 BC that it's all over, that The city of Jerusalem, the capital, the main hub where the temple is, all that is just raised to the ground, destroyed Jerusalem and the identity of the people of Judah, it's over. So where we are in Ezekiel, Babylon is in control of Israel, of Judah, God's people, but we're not quite yet at that 586, the city has fallen, it's all over point. And that happens in the book, and that's a big turning point in the book. But because of the dates, we know for most of the book, we're leading up to that. Okay, now that's important. Another really important thing to keep in mind when reading Ezekiel is the audience. Now, because Ezekiel talks so much about Jerusalem and Babylon and judgment coming, we would expect that to be his audience, right? Like he's talking to the people in Jerusalem. But actually, we know from the very beginning of the book, Ezekiel's audience isn't Jerusalem. It's the Jewish people who have been deported to Babylon. It's the Jewish people in an entirely other country, on the Kibar Canal in Tel Aviv. Now, think about that. Why on earth would a prophetic message, would a prophet's entire career focus on Jerusalem and all the things that were about to happen to it when he wasn't even talking to Jerusalem he was talking to the exiles in Babylon like they've already been kicked out why would that matter to them anymore and why would that be such focus bonus points if you can figure that out this week before the next episode next week we'll come back to that question and give an answer Another important thing about the audience is, is just think about what they've gone through in light of that history. Think of where they're at spiritually, like what's running through their heads, what they're thinking about. Uh, I love what Daniel Block says when he's describing their social setting and experience. Like they've already had Babylon come and take them over, right? Like they're not at the it's all over city's destroyed point yet, but it's still a massive— intense theological shock, he calls it. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylon ruler's victory, left the Judeans emotionally devastated, raising many questions about Yahweh, the Lord, questions about divine impotence, betrayal, abandonment. Based on appearances, the God of Babylon had prevailed. Ezekiel faced an audience that was disillusioned cynical, bitter, and angry, disillusioned, cynical, bitter, angry. I think there's a lot of relevance there for how some of us are feeling today. And the more that we can identify with Ezekiel's audience, living in this other country, confused about what God is doing, having experienced things or not experienced things that they thought they should, it just makes the whole thing a lot more relatable and easier to see how it fits into what's going on in our lives. Now, let's just stop for a minute. I know you probably didn't sign up to this podcast to get a dump of background information, so I'd feel pretty bad if I just stopped the episode here. And Before we close out in anticipation of next week, I want to recap what we've covered so far, why it matters, and some takeaways we can work with from what's already been said in this episode. So as we're starting out a discussion in Ezekiel, we're thinking through some of the first impressions that we're working with. For many of us, although we're not very familiar with a lot of what's in Ezekiel, there are about three things that we are familiar with. One is how weird the book is. The other is a passage in the middle that a lot of people think is describing Satan's origin story. And finally, the Valley of Dry Bones has gotten a lot of traction in revivalist and African-American circles because of its powerful portrayal of what God can do and will do for the Jewish people, even when everything seems dead three times over. Now, there are good things about those first impressions and interpretations, and there are some unintended consequences. While it's good for us to be aware of the strange style and otherworldly journey Ezekiel takes us through, it's not good for us to let the weirdness of it all keep us from engaging the message— While it's great that we're interested in a very neglected part of the prophet's message with the judgments against the enemies of God's people, it's a bit of a letdown when we're only interested in it for what it tells us about Satan and primordial history when that really isn't what it's concerned about. And while it's good for us to be familiar with the powerful promises of hope in visions like the Valley of Dry Bones, we miss out so much when we separate Ezekiel's section of judgment from its section of hope. They're meant to go together, and that's what we'll dive into next week. But for now, we wanted to do some groundwork in clearing up confusion to help us in the weeks ahead to have a better idea of what the book is saying on its own terms. So we dove into a bit of backstory. Now, these prophecies are not spoken out of thin air and stuffed into fortune cookies— their crash landing, alien pun intended, into a specific point in time given to a specific group of people addressing a particular situation that they're facing. So two of the big things we want to remember from that backstory is where we are in the timeline of Israel's history. Remember, only Judah, a small southern leftover of the kingdom of Israel, where the line of David is still barely hanging on, only Judah is hanging on here by a thread. And Babylon has taken them over. But it's not all over yet. The city of Jerusalem still stands, but not for long. And when it all falls apart, there's a turning point in the book of Ezekiel. That's one big thing to remember, to set us straight. The other big thing to remember is the audience that Ezekiel is speaking to, where they're coming from, what they've experienced, what they're getting wrong, and how we can relate to their doubts, their struggles, their sins, and their circumstances. Ezekiel isn't actually prophesying to the people living in Jerusalem, even though so much of the prophecies focus on that. He's prophesying to his fellow exiles, people living in Babylon, trying to make sense of what happened to them and what will happen to them, even while the baggage of their spiritual corruption has stuck with them. Now, what's something that we can take away from all that for this week, even while we wait until next week? to look firsthand at the content. We've been doing a lot of clearing up confusion in this episode, but that's not all we're after in this podcast. We wanna draw out the unique contribution of Ezekiel and flesh out the impact it can have in our lives. So I wanna focus now on one strand of what we covered that intersects with almost everything we've talked about. And it's Ezekiel 33, 30 to 33. I've read this before, but I'm just gonna read it again for us. As for you, Human, Ezekiel, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act, their heart is set on their gain And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. I think this highlights what's dangerous about neglecting Ezekiel for its weirdness It highlights one example of what we need to sit through before we're ready for the Valley of Dry Bones. Highlights one way that we can relate to Ezekiel's audience and therefore feel the weight of God's warnings more personally. See, I don't think these people listening to Ezekiel really realized what they were doing, or at least they hardened themselves and their way of thinking so much that they had this willful ignorance. It can be easy to feel like, especially you know, with the stranger parts of the Bible, it's enough to be interested in it. I mean, that's more than a lot of people, right? It's enough to crack the code and get the meaning of it. Ah, the wheels and the storm clouds are depicting a chariot. Awesome. I got it. How fascinating. Having done a lot of theological research, I'm definitely guilty of only taking things that far when I've had the chance to do more. But do we really think that's why God revealed things in the Bible? For us to say, huh, how interesting, and crack the code? God tells us in Ezekiel 33 that He doesn't care too much how fascinated we are by what He says, as much as He cares about whether we get the point and what we do with it. In the same way, when we talk about God's Word with other people, when we share the gospel, We don't want to settle for people being fascinated by what we're saying or even understanding the gist of it. We don't want to be content being the enticing musicians with some mad riffs of Bible knowledge that people clap for but forget about by lunchtime. We want to do more than just give our attention and open up our minds. We want to open up our hearts to be changed by the ones speaking to us. Now, we may generally know that that's what we need just by being Christians, but Ezekiel here really warns of how subtle and dangerous it is to neglect that. These realities that I'm talking about may fascinate you, he says, but they're actually coming. Are you ready for them? Or will it take until that point when Jesus comes back, when you breathe your last, when disaster strikes, for you to truly know what you've been neglecting? Not exactly a positive takeaway, I know, but a helpful one, I think. This week, think of a part of the Bible, maybe a verse, maybe a book, a parable that really fascinates you, that that you find really interesting. And ask yourself, can I do more than just get the gist of it? Do I get the point and do I feel it pointing at me? Can I respond the way the parable expects me to? Do with it what God wants me to and be ready for the things it's talking about. Something to pray about if you find that helpful as we look forward to next week when we'll start walking through that journey with Ezekiel. Now, in the spirit of opening ourselves up to God, of pushing past the fascination to truly engage with him, I want to close praying the words of John Donne's poem. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet, but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, o'erthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viscery in me, me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. See you guys next time.